a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, we've got uh, we got a lot to talk about today. Let's get right to it. Thanks to my sponsors who make this possible. They include quiltandsew.com, Ironsight Brewing Company, TMCP Nation, Life Saving Food, also LDS Dating App. I want to welcome uh, welcome them as a new sponsor and encourage you if you are if you are single, you might want to click on that one. Take a look and see uh, see what's available. So, I spend a lot of time preaching the gospel of propaganda-proofing yourself, which is not so much a matter of if you can just find the right source, you'll find somebody who will, you know, tell you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Now, the problem is there is no unbiased source, including me. I'm, I'm as biased as can be. The difference is I'm willing to admit it, and, uh, and I, I acknowledge that not everybody is going to agree with this message, nor should they. So, having said that, Propaganda-proofing yourself takes daily effort to avoid being misled. And even so, there is a tremendous industry that is out there to deflect and distract and mislead and keep you from getting too close to the truth on your own. Michael Herman has a couple of perfect examples of how that hidden propaganda takes place right under our noses. This is a recent Substack column of his. He says, when it comes to hidden propaganda, it's everywhere you look on TV. Now, he says, I'm not sure where I've heard it. But I've seen two recent discussions online that postulated the idea that the CIA had been grooming television personalities since the 1960s. That it had created assets in media to propagandize the population and established a strong foothold behind the scenes in Hollywood. I don't know if he knows this, but there's truth to that. He says, now I use quotations around the word Hollywood because that's become the generic term for all of media throughout the greater Los Angeles metro region. But there isn't much actual production left within shouting distance of Hollywood and Vine. Now he says, at first I I dismissed that idea the CIA would be involved in television production and the personalities that we see every day. Something about the term used or citing the 1960s as some starting point and thinking back on the personalities of the day He says it just made no sense that television stars of the day would agree to be a useful tool of the deep state. To promote propaganda on behalf of the government for cash? That smacks a little too much of of a little too much of Herman Goring. And hadn't we just been through World War II? Weren't these men familiar with fascist behavior just a little too up close and personal to get involved with our own government's version of propagandizing our people? Well, he raises a good point. In fact, he says, something in my mind immediately went to Frank Sinatra singing on some variety show or Dean Martin, who had his own show. He says, they just didn't seem to me to be men who would take orders from the CIA to promote a narrative. Sure, Bob Hope was traveling Southeast Asia doing goodwill tours with the USO, but that was all out of the goodness of his heart for our boys, wasn't it? Not some thinly veiled support for a war that never should have been fought. Hope is says to have been Hope is said to have been the richest man in California then, owning more land than anyone but the federal government. But I'm sure that wouldn't have been from cash funneled to him from the CIA, right? 
the various celebrities that accompanied him, well, they were doing our boys a favor, right? Joey Heatherton wouldn't allow herself to be used to sell an awful war, would she? I trusted her when I bought that Serta. He's bringing back some good memories here. Michael Herman says, we weren't tacitly indicating that we, they weren't tacitly indicating that we should support a worthless war that had nothing to do with protecting the U.S. of A. and was really more about Pentagon aggression against a Soviet Union boogeyman, right? A little military industrial complex cash grabs spread out over 10 years. And he says, as I was driving, giving this some thought, two contemporary people popped immediately into mind. First was Michael Strahan. Second was Stephen Colbert. Now, I have to admit, I didn't, I didn't even know who Michael Strahan was. And frankly, that's because I just watched that little of television. But uh, Strahan played the game. A tough lineman, strong, manly, gritty. He was in the trenches. He gave a beating. He took a beating. This is a man's man, a gap-toothed tough guy who won championships, who had the discipline, talent, and fortitude to play the game at the highest level. Every man envies Strahan. He walked through the tunnel, got down in the mud, doled out the beatings, and took his share. And he says, as my mind went to the man sitting on those stupid bar height stools, as feet away, the rather fay and petite George Stephanopoulos cooed over a makeover, and there sat Strahan, smiling too, praising some housewife from Ohio for getting a $500 haircut and highlight and having makeup applied liberally from a professional backstage. It isn't very traditionally manly to sit through a makeover show. But not only was the man's man, Michael Strahan, sitting there smiling through it all, he was participating. In fact, he links next to a video of Strahan praising an 11-year-old drag queen. Now, the point here is that through every liberal episode of Good Morning America, there sits Strahan supporting the COVID shot in every discussion every morning of the pandemic, sitting smiling through the LGBTQ plus alphabet soup episode supporting gender transition, the idea that there exist multiple genders, sitting smiling as the network show pushes every liberal idea imaginable. And Michael Herman says, and then I thought of my friends, my frat boy friends, the jocks, guys who may not have played the game at the highest level but the same kind of men that Strahan used to be surrounded by in the locker room. And his point is, not one of them would sit through that crap smiling and smiling without some wisecrack or negative comment. Without correcting George that, hey, if you get the shot, you can't transmit or get the disease. Uh, That isn't right, George. You got the shot and you've had the disease twice now. Why are you lying to the American people? Or Mrs. Jones from Ohio does look great. I'm not sure how she'll be able to find one of the finest New York stylists to maintain her new hair in Toledo or have a makeup professional visit to keep the applications fresh. But hey, she looks better today. He says, I can't see any normal man I know sitting through a morning show drag performance and not saying, well, you may be entertained, but I find all this a bit disturbing. And now a word from our sponsor, Pfizer. Now, Michael says, now after thinking it over, I'm more convinced than ever that Michael Strahan is a plant, a paid operative, meant to give the appearance appearance to all, rather, that a man's man, a jock who has achieved at the highest, toughest level of sports, is perfectly comfortable sitting and speaking with an 11-year-old drag queen. Hey, you out there, Mr. Jock, Mr. Tough Guy, you got something against an 11-year-old drag queen? What is wrong with you? You're not as tough as Michael Strahan, and he endorses it all. 
Michael Herman says, why is it I knew immediately when they appointed former Clinton counsel and insider George Stephanopoulos to the show Good Morning America that this was nothing but a propagandist for the DNC and left wing acting as some neutral arbiter of the news every morning? I knew immediately this was a plant from the left to parrot every narrative from the left. But why didn't my tiny, tiny little brain go and make the connection that if they will do it with George, why would they not co-opt others? Why would they not do it with every talking head on the show, including tough guy Strahan, a bit more thinly disguised, but every bit the propaganda as as George. Propagandist, rather, as George. Which brings us to Stephen Colbert. When you think about the COVID narrative, uh, when you think about the government lies about COVID, when you think about stay six feet apart, masks work, if you get the shot, you can't get COVID or transmit COVID, your cousin who won't get the shot is killing your grandmother. The pandemic started in a wet market. Have you ever heard of a pangolin? And the lab leak theory has been debunked. Don't you picture in your mind Stephen Colbert and the dancing hypodermic needles from the vax scene? Now, he says, I don't watch Colbert, but every YouTube cut of him is one where he's denigrating Donald Trump, attempting to destroy Republicans, promoting Democrats, and being the biggest shill for the left that has ever occupied a slot on television. But there's no other explanation for Colbert than that he is a plant from the deep state to promote all things DNC, all things left, to convince the American people that government knows what's best for the people. He's just too far left extreme to be anything but a plant. In the old days, you'd get to work, be making your morning coffee, and inevitably someone would come into the break room and say, hey, did you see Carson last night? I got to say, I've never laughed so hard, you know, and you'd hear part of his monologue, repeated a story on him and a guest. Soon the entire office would be laughing or smiling over some anecdote over Carson on his late night show. So when's the last time anyone referenced Colbert being funny? Or Kimmel being funny? It never happens. It just never happens anymore. Why, it's as if their job is no longer to amuse us right before bed, to be humorous and send us to slumber smiling about their antics, but to send us to be indoctrinated, sleeping soundly knowing Big Brother government is there for all of us, dancing COVID needles in support of our mutual health, our collective benefit. We're all ensconced in our government's warm embrace, comforting and caring for us all. Colbert soft-chewing as he soft-chews government propaganda, we shuffle off to sleep. You know, when you put it in those terms, yeah, it does look a lot more like propaganda. There's more to this article. We'll come back to it in a few moments. Again, you can check it out at my uh, show notes page. That would be the thebrianhideshow.com. Click on show notes for January 31st, 2024. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I just want to follow up a couple more thoughts here from Michael Herman from his article on hidden propaganda. And I remember, you know, I I didn't watch the Stephen Colbert show, but I did see the clip of him and the dancing hypodermic needles, you know, singing about the vaccine. There was a very forced quality, like someone off stage pointing a gun at him kind of quality that uh, it just makes you wonder. And I, I have to wonder how many of these, these people, you know, like, like Stephen Colbert and others, how many of them actually maybe willingly 
have sold out. Look, we can promise you fame. We can promise you fortune. You're never going to need money again. But if you want to do this, you've got to be willing to play ball. In other words, you cannot be an independent voice. And you certainly can't contradict conventional wisdom. Suddenly that seems a lot more like or a lot more likely. Michael uh, Herman writes, the idea of the CIA using this new medium in the 1960s to propagandize the American people seem anathema to its purpose to protect us from others. He says the idea that the CIA would turn inward and propagandize the American people feels backwards, convoluted, sinister, almost evil. Yet thinking back, this would be just after they had murdered Kennedy. Yeah. Paranoia had to be running deep then, the idea of beginning a campaign to steer Americans' thoughts and beliefs toward their common goals would make complete sense. I mean, how do you square the idea today that a Rachel Maddow is being paid some $35 million for one show a week? Could that be just rewards for lying to the American public nightly about Russiagate at full volume or berating Americans to follow the directive on COVID? See, then it starts to make complete sense. To witness anyone on MSNBC sit there and spout DNC talking points literally 24-7, to think that Joy Reid has her own show and survives the lowest ratings imaginable. How is this possible? What keeps these shows on the air? There has to be funding from some source to keep these shows airing. Their ratings are lower than for some infomercials, yet they never go off the air. Could support dollars be flowing through back channels from from our CIA to MSNBC to promote the DNC talking points full-time? How else would you explain the view? Now, he asks, are Americans really clamoring for far-left rhetoric and narrative all day, every day? Seriously. As a lifelong conservative, he says, have I become such a tiny minority with such a stilted viewpoint that I'm completely out of step with the American people? Am I wrong to look at California with its supermajority Democratic government where Democrats control everything, every aspect of California life and living, all taxation, all regulations. They control absolutely everything in California and can get their way 100% of the time. And I don't see paradise. I don't see some Shangri-La. I don't see Nirvana and the recreated Garden of Eden on Earth. I see an absolute overtaxed crap hole with, with homeless, run amok, crime, run amok, unlivable conditions, as in Oakland, San Francisco, and deep de- and San Francisco in deep decline, Los Angeles bifurcating into the very, very rich, and the abject poor with no middle class. And I say, well, you have to blame Democrats. There are no Republicans or conservatives in any positions of power. And then he asks the $64,000 question. What would it take for you to move to Oakland tomorrow? That's a good point. California, he says, is perhaps the most beautiful state in the Union. Gorgeous. Mountains, ocean, lakes. Every time I visit, I marvel at how beautiful the state really is. But then I visit Venice and can't walk on the sidewalk for the homeless and trash is everywhere and you have to look in the sand as you walk so you don't step on a used drug needle. The more I look, he says, the more I believe that, yes, the CIA is somehow propping up talking heads to propagandists full-time, propagandizes full-time. He says it's the only thing that explains Colbert and surely the only thing that explains a Joy Behar. If you had to use one word, word to describe Behar, screech comes immediately to mind. Pretty interesting take. And I guess it's just another good reason to, wherever possible, 
Turn the television off. Step away from the screens. I'm talking to more and more people who are doing this, and, you know, I I feel like I'm walking this fine line here, too, between, well, I want to keep you informed, but so much of what keeps us informed also keeps us depressed and keeps us alarmed about what's taking place. Take that media fast. Do it regularly, and you'll be much more in control of your perceptions of what's going on. In other words, the world looks much more normal, usually within just a couple of days. All right, I want to shift gears here. If we truly want to be free, we have to learn to stop caring what others think or say about us. Now, I know that sounds easy, but it's it's not. If you want to develop that superpower, though, you will appreciate Paul Rosenberg's article called Call Me Pisher. This was originally published a few years ago, but... He explains, call me Pisher is a Yiddish phrase phrase from my youth, and it was used to instruct me in a very important lesson, although he says, I hardly realized it at the time. And since Yiddish speakers were often not delicate persons, I'm going to have to be a little less than delicate today. So, in Yiddish, Pisher properly means pisser, and by implication, a Pisher is someone who still pees their pants as an adult. Obviously, it was a term of denigration, indicating a worthless person. So, What call me Pisher meant in practice was, go ahead and call me an a-hole. I don't care. Here's how the phrase was used. Person A would say, yeah, but if you do that, they'll say you're a commie or a fascist or whatever. Person B says, I don't care. Let them call me Pisher. Now, this is actually an important lesson because if you aren't emotionally prepared to let people say bad things about you, you're stuck where you are. And you will never escape so long as those people or others like them exist. That is, you'll be frozen in place for life. So he says at some point you have to say, go ahead, call me Pisher. If you cannot, you will never be free to act on your own will and your own judgments. The opinions of others will control you. Fear of their slanders and their gossip will paralyze you and own you. But he says, I'm not telling you that letting people call you Pisher is without consequence. He says, I've lost friends, even business associates, because I said, call me Pisher or some near equivalent. Some people will do that if only for the feeling of power that it gives them. Still, he says, call me Pisher is a cry of liberation and a powerful one. So he talks about when do you vindicate yourself? When we're afraid to say, call me Pisher, we sacrifice ourselves to those whose negative opinions we fear. We're demoting ourselves and vindicating the collective. But when do we vindicate ourselves? Is the majority always right? Is fearing the majority a reason to sell our souls? Personally, he says, I quite agree with Wendy McElroy, paraphrasing Thoreau when she points out, every human being has a fundamental obligation to determine what is just and then to act according to his or her conscience, even if it contradicts the majority or the law. One's moral conscience is what makes someone fully human. End quote. So, no, that's not an easy stand to take when you're young or small or weak or when you're under tremendous pressures. Been there, done that, as I suppose we all have, but that's not where we should stay. At some point, we have to vindicate ourselves. We have to place ourselves apart from and above the collective. In my opinion, he says, the individual does stand above the collective, but you'll have to make up your own mind. And that's the point. You must make up your own mind and stand firm, no matter that they call you names. And he says, please understand, if you want to grow as a person, your own approval must be paramount, leaving the approval of the collective in another of the colorful phrases of my youth to go pound sand. So he says, if you decide that this lesson is useful, 
please pass it along and don't be timid about it. If you'll let, if you have to let people call you names, tell your friends about it before you do so or immediately afterward. Let them see you stand up for yourself. Let them see you suffer for it. Let them see you standing stronger afterward. More than anything, let them see you're a solid person precisely because of your ability to stand up for yourself and take whatever arrows may come. They need to see it. So let them call you Pisher and be proud of it. Suffer for it if you must, but continue to cultivate that ability. Cultivate your own position in your own eyes and don't surrender it. Paul Rosenberg says your future and the future of the world depend upon it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Look, I got to apologize. I My game is off. I know, really, really uh, diehard listeners might think he doesn't sound like he's quite up to speed here. I'm not. I threw my back out earlier this week, and while I'm not in agonizing pain, um, I'm definitely not moving like I should be. Yeah, it's just one of those things. And it wasn't even anything sporting. Oh, yeah, well, I was, you know, doing uh, backflips on the trampoline, and, man, I tried to hit the triple Lindy, and, ha, gee, wouldn't you know, my back started giving me fits. No, it was something much simpler. I just walked through the gate into my chicken coop, and seriously, from one step to the next, it was like, uh-oh. I can't walk. And it's one of those crazy things that just takes uh, takes a few days, sometimes even a few weeks to to get to back to normal. But in the meantime, it uh, it definitely does. It it plays into everything else I do. I may work with my voice, but my mind doesn't work as well when I'm crippled up. I'm probably not alone in that. If I had a bad cold, it'd be the same way. All right, I want to shift gears here for a moment and talk about the perception that uh, many of us have that too few people were willing to stand up to the COVID tyranny as it was imposed on us. And that's kind of how I remember it, too, as most people went along. But Jeffrey Tucker says, hey, don't be so fast. He says, maybe more people objected than we realized. He says, for four years, we've carried around a presumption that when lockdowns came, most people went along out of fear of the virus. Or maybe people were just intimidated by the propaganda, which was overwhelming. The mass formation or madness of crowds kicked in and tossed out their wits in favor of following the myth to absurd extents. Now, that's a conventional version of what happened. And yet, we keep hearing of early voices of dissent at the time that didn't get a hearing. So he says the problem of figuring out whether and what to uh, to what extent rather people acquiesce to tyranny that's an important one, and it's complicated by accumulating evidence that the government worked with tech and media and therefore with the main way people get their news to actively suppress contrary voices even when they came from recognized experts of great credibility. And I like that he brings up this example mainly because I just watched this movie a few months back. Did you see the movie The Big Short? It's based on a book by Michael Lewis. They celebrate short, both celebrate short-selling contrary and Michael Burry of Scion Capital. 
Back in 2006, he began to see strange features of the housing bubble. These financial products called mortgage-backed securities, or MSBs, packed highly rated mortgage bonds with terribly rated ones. The more he looked, the more he was convinced that a massive housing bust was on the way. So he shorted the market even going to the point of pushing various financial firms to create funds that did just that even when they previously didn't exist. Very few believed there was a bubble in housing because all the experts, including the head of the central bank, said otherwise. The whole system was propping up a fake market. Now, Burry, who's a trained physician, believed it was going to fail. He looked at the details instead of trusting the experts, and he turned out to be correct, perhaps early, but correct eventually. The book and movie present him as a hero for being willing to go against the crowd and the experts both. Now, the lesson here, we should all be more like Burry. Ever since the telling of this story, he's been valorized as a person of great wisdom. Never trust the experts, the system, the conventional wisdom, the madness of crowds. Do your own research like Burry did. So when the lockdowns began in March of 2020... It turns out that Dr. Burry joined Twitter solely for the purpose of denouncing what was going on. He sent emails, too, to Bloomberg. Burry wrote them right away. Stay-at-home policies need not be universal, he wrote. COVID-19 is a disease that is somewhat lethal for the obese, the very old, the already sick. Public policies have no nuance because they want to maximize fear to enforce compliance. But universal stay-at-home policies devastate small and medium-sized business and indirectly beat up women and children, kill and create drug addicts, engender suicides, and in general create tremendous misery and mental anguish. These secondary and tertiary effects are getting no play in the prevailing narratives. Now, among his statements on Twitter, he said Americans must not abide. Government restrictions are doing orders of magnitude more damage to the lives of Americans than COVID ever could have done on its own. He says roughly 2.8 million people die in the U.S. each year. The worst estimates for COVID would add less than 10% to that total. Consider this as the media implies that Americans are are dying at multiples of normal rates. Compassion is not incompatible with facts. Another tweet states, unconscionable. Let's put today's horrific jobless claims in perspective. This is not the virus. This is the response to the virus killing the U.S. and global economy. With all accompanying human tragedy, I present America's initial jobless claims over the decades. And one last one. COVID, like all coronaviruses, will not easily engender durable herd immunity, and vaccines will prove elusive. We must learn to live with it, which means universal lockdown or universal treatment, rather, with available drugs and no hysteria. In other words, no lockdown. Now, Jeffrey Tucker reports that he took down the tweets and maybe out of despair uh, deleted his accounts. Maybe he didn't feel like it was making any difference. We don't know. Nor do we know how many retweets or likes he received or what the comments were because simply they are are no longer there. Now, given Burry's status as a genuine contrarian expert in the midst of a grotesque policy without precedent, you would have thought that the media would be all over him. He'd be on all the talk shows. Experts would address his claims, refuting them or backing them. But what happened instead was nothing. Jeffrey Tucker says, in those days, I was desperate to find voices of disagreement. I really could not find any. I felt very alone, and so too, as it turns out, did many others. 
There were many of us, as it turns out, we just couldn't find each other. Or maybe certain algorithms were in place that prevented us from finding each other. This seemed to be the strange trend alive at the time. The recognized experts of the past were all swept away. Many had their accounts deleted. They were replaced by new experts about whom we knew nothing or who had severely compromised reputations like Anthony Fauci. An example is Devi Sridhar, who advised the Scottish government. More than anyone else, she was granted astonishing amounts of airtime throughout the UK. She was a proponent of the idea of zero COVID through lockdowns and later vaccines. She now admits that this was an error, that we do indeed need to live with the that we do indeed need to live with the virus. But her book from that period, she still promotes on all of her social media accounts. Did they have any track records we could check? How do we know these people are real experts? These were questions hardly anyone asked. How is it that Sridhar was the go-to expert, whereas other experts were throttled, blocked, denounced, canceled, and deleted? Perhaps because she worked for the Gates Foundation? Hmm? Well, it's possible, or it's impossible, rather, not to become a conspiracy theorist to some extent as you look at this situation. He says there's no reason to go all the way to October with the experts who wrote the Great Barrington Declaration. They faced extreme attacks. But really, the attempts to curate the public mind and engineer a consensus began as soon as the lockdowns took effect. The same agency that meddled so heavily in information curation was also the agency that broke up the workforce between essential and non-essential and later on dismissed the risks of absentee ballots even though their internal memos reveal vast awareness. That would be the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. Created in 2018 and practically invisible to most Americans, this small agency exercised enormous power over what we knew and what we heard. Meanwhile, we've been hearing about many dissidents who were trying to speak out early on and could not get a hearing, many of whom now write for Brownstone now. He says, think how different 2008 would have been with the same level of speech control. Markets would not have corrected toward reality so quickly. It's one thing for a truth to be unpopular or unconventional, but it's something else to be actively suppressed. So looking back, one really does wonder what the reality was in those early days after lockdown. No question that mass formation played a huge role. No question that people gave in and complied far more than they should have. But what if government had not been collaborating with tech and media had just allowed the free flow of information? Might the lockdowns have ended much sooner, simply because people could have heard a different point of view? Jeffrey Tucker says we'll never know. This does serve as a cautionary note against a wholesale condemnation of the world for failing to stand up to tyranny. Maybe many people did stand up in whatever limited way they could, but simply faced a system that prevented them from getting a hearing. I'll tell you, I really have come to trust Jeffrey Tucker's voice and his, his fact-finding on this, this issue. He may be one of the leading proponents of accountability and trying to avoid making the same mistakes that, uh, that led to all the carnage that, uh, that was the response to COVID. I have a link to his article in my show notes, which you can find at thebrianhydeshow.com. Again, these are the show notes for January 31st, 2024. Take a moment and, and uh, subscribe while you're there on those show notes. And if you're in a subscribing mood, you might even want to consider subscribing to my daily two-minute feature, Hide in Plain Sight. 
You'll find a link to help you with that on the website as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. It's our final segment of today's show. By the way, I, I just, I have to apologize. Uh, I'm talking through my nose right now. In addition to uh, dealing with some back problems, it feels like a little bit of a winter cold is trying to do its thing. Yeah, it's going around. Some some people have it tough. This is not so bad. At least I'm, I'm still working indoors, and I'm very grateful for that. Although, I got to tell you, I'm a little bit baffled at uh, what's happening uh, season-wise. It doesn't look or feel like late January out there in my backyard. It looks like early March. There's green. My chickens are actually wandering around finding little green shoots. And Oh, yes, the, the rabbits. My neighbor turned loose some rabbits last year. And, um, can we just say they're multiplying like rabbits? And, you know, I'm seeing, out there, I'm seeing them out there grazing on the grass, which is... Is, is starting to green up, and this just seems terribly out of place. I know. I, I, hear, I hear the, well, Brian, that's probably uh, climate change, and you should probably just give more money and more power to the people in charge so that they can fix that. Well, I don't want it fixed. <laughs> I, I kind of like not scraping my window in the morning, but it is odd. It gives a very strange sense of, uh, you know, being displaced a little bit, like, did the calendar get screwed up somehow? Because somehow this just feels a little bit off. It's like Christmas carols in July. It just just doesn't quite fit. So if current events are making you feel hopeless, and by the way, I talk to people pretty much on a daily basis now who just say, I just can't handle listening to the news anymore or trying to stay up on current events. And, you know, I, I hope I'm not adding to fear or anxiety, but but I understand there's there's a lot of absolute crazy stuff happening, and it's getting weirder and getting more unbalanced. Uh, the, some of the military stuff that's shaping up in the Middle East, you know, if if you're not preparing as if we were about to go to war, I think this is really a good time to shake yourself out of that trance and and just say, what if? What if we were? What would I do differently? What would I stock up on? What would I make sure I had on hand if certain things were to become in very short supply or become rationed or something. I know, but there you go, your apocalyptic fantasies, but I'm just saying this as someone who's trying to be as as objective an observer as possible. The danger signals are there. And no, you can't prepare 100% perfectly, you know, to avoid every complication in life. But anything you're doing that is is increasing your self-sufficiency is, is going to be a wise thing. There may even come a day where you say, I'm so glad that we did this or that we had this contingency, you know, in, in our plans. Now, as far as the hopelessness, I'm still going to stick with my original advice of take a media fast. In fact, walk away from the media. If, it's, if you find it's poisoning you and poisoning your outlook, yeah. You need to walk away from it. That, that includes this show. If I'm, if I'm giving you too much bad news to deal with, I, I'm not above telling you it's probably best take a break from it. Now, I do try to be careful 
with the, the information that I share. And I try to share it in a way that's not just, you know, throwing chunks of red meat to get the crowd riled up. But you do need a bit of encouragement from time to time. By the way, that's explicitly what I'm trying to do with my hide in plain sight, little daily uh, two-minute truth bomb. It's, it's very non-political. It's very much about getting back in charge of your own life and, and encouraging you to reach out and find the happiness and find the sense of purpose that, uh, that puts things back in your control. In fact, I want to share with you a commentary from Jeff Minnick. The battles we can win. Now, he's specifically talking about family, morality, and education. Jeff Minnick says, In Burke, on our crisis of character, which appeared in the December 2023 issue of Chronicles, Bruce Fronin notes, The American way was real, rooted in families whose rights trumped the demands of the state because families were more natural and fundamental than the state. The following month in the same magazine, Stephen Baskerville reviews a collection of essays up from conservatism in which he briefly addresses the pernicious effects of government welfare on family life and fatherhood. As is the case in nearly everything that the federal government touches, be it education, health care, or anything else, its policies in the last 50 years have severely damaged the American family, says Jeff Minnick. Given the additional harms done by government in the first quarter of the 21st century, trillions of dollars in wasted expenses, woefully ignorant public school graduates, divisions along lines of race, politics, and gender, a diminished pride in our past, the attacks on our liberties. He says, some people I know despair about the future. Others of us want to restore the good that has been lost, but feel frustrated and even defeated by the immensity of the task. We vote. We growls, as I'm doing here, yet each day brings some new assault on the culture, some new governmental dictate or intrusion, and we just want to hunker down in the trenches, hoping that this bombardment will end of its own accord. And yet, he says, while we may feel helpless and insignificant in the face of this onslaught, we as individuals actually possess the power to repair the very foundation stones of our republic, the family, morality, and education. I really like his take here, and this this should leave you feeling empowered as well. Jeff Minnick says, Charity begins at home, goes the old saying, and if we take charity to mean caritas, love, then our families deserve the full allegiance of our hearts. By focusing more of our energy and affection on our children, spouses, parents, and other relatives, we create bastions of comfort and love. These strong families will in turn lead to strong communities and a stronger culture. Intertwined with these family ties is a code of traditional morality. By traditional, he says, I mean those basics laid down over the last three millennia, from the Ten Commandments to the musings of such contemporaries as Jordan Peterson. In the 2005 film Cinderella Man, we see a good example of this connection between moral teaching and family life. In the movie, Depression-era heavyweight boxer Jim Braddock's son, Jay, steals a salami from the butcher shop, afraid that if his family doesn't have enough to eat, he and his siblings will be sent sent away to live with relatives, as happened to his friend. After taking his son to return the salami, Braddock says to him, Things ain't easy at the moment, Jay. You're right. There's a lot of people worse off than what we are. Just because things ain't easy, that don't give you the excuse to take what's not yours, does it? That's stealing, right? We don't steal. No matter what happens, we don't steal. Not ever. Now, Jeff Minnick says here, the family, in this case the father, becomes the teacher of sound ethics. 
how we live and how we teach our children to live are battles we can win. Finally, we as parents and guardians and not some government entity are responsible for our children's education. Ultimately, it's up to us to provide them with the tools that will lead to an educated and fulfilling life. But he says we need to keep in mind that education is also bound up with the preservation of liberty. Using the classic liberal arts, literature, history, philosophy as our vehicle, we can pass on to our young people their culture, a code of morality, and real critical thinking skills. These gifts will in turn allow them to live as citizens fully aware of the good, the true, the beautiful, and always alert as well to infringements on their natural rights and liberties. To give ourselves and these children, and our children rather, these three things, a family, a code to live by, an education deserving of the name, we need no government other than ourselves. By our will, our own willpower and good intentions, we can keep these foundations in good repair. He's right. Onward and upward, let's print those old words on our hearts and never despair. Now, I know for some people, there, there's got to be that sense of, well, you're just saying that, you know, classical liberal arts education, literature, history, philosophy, if I read or study those things, that's going to somehow make things better. It, it sounds too good to be true, right? But let me tell you what, what Jeff Minnick is getting at here. If you teach your kids to use those things, you are imparting culture. You are imparting those critical thinking skills. You're imparting a code of morality. But here's the, this is the missing element that a lot of people won't see. You have to have that classic liberal arts education yourself. If you want your kids to get it, here's the way you go about it. Let them see you with your nose buried in a good book from time to time. Let them hear you talk about the questions that come up as you're engaged in that study. This is the power of leading by example. And it's way more powerful than any of us really can appreciate, at least at the moment. But kids who are raised in a household where, you know, we read old books and we discuss old books and we push ourselves to learn things that are above our heads, those kids are going to pick up some good habits. As in, they're going to be better thinkers. They're going to be more, more easily able to zero in on the problems instead of just standing there complaining about the symptoms. This is how you propaganda-proof yourself. And all it takes is an investment of time and effort. I know, none of us has enough time, but if we want something bad enough, we make time. It's time to make time for this. This is The Brian Hyde Show.